Now turn, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This will be a pastor's prayer for believers, part 1. A pastor's prayer for believers, part 1. And we'll be covering uh, at least part of verses 15 to 23. One day, a man attempted to cross the frozen St. Lawrence River in Canada, and he was unsure if the ice was going to hold him. And so first he he tested the the integrity of the ice. He he, uh, carefully and slowly laid his hand out and and, and whacked the ice to see if it would crack or if it would hold. And and seeing that it was that it was withstanding the force of his meager blows, he then uh, gets down on his hands and his knees and he begins gingerly, very cautiously, uh, trepidatiously making his way across the ice. And when he got to the middle of the frozen river, and you have to picture him, he is trembling with morbid fear, uh, for fear that he's going to break through the ice at, at any moment. All of a sudden he hears a noise, and he looks behind him, and behind him, to his absolute horror, is a cart, a, a buggy being drawn by several horses, and they are steamrolling down the road towards the frozen St. Lawrence River. And to his horror, to his absolute horror, the buggy did not turn as it approached the river, but it just forged right onto the ice and passed him. And while he is there quivering on all fours, turning all sorts of shades of blue that I don't know if it had been discovered yet, There he was, learning the integrity of the ice. Many Christians go through their days with the same assurance that God is actively working in the affairs of history and in the affairs of the church. They have the same assurance in the power and the activity of God as that man had in the integrity of the ice. In our text today, we will be reminded that God is very much at work And that we should be greatly encouraged by that as we see it, as we see the evidence of that. And we should be moved to give thanks as it did for the Apostle Paul. Now, as I said, this is going to be part one. We're not going to get through the whole thing. Jack, rest easy. But we will we will cover in verses 15 and 16. We will cover Paul's praise. Paul's uh, you could also say Paul's gratitude for the believers in and around Ephesus. And then verses 17 to 23, which we'll cover next time, will be Paul's petition for the believers. Let's let's read the verses in its entirety. Paul writes, For this reason too, I, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give, you, give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory 
of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. For today, let's consider Paul's praise for believers, Paul's, Paul's gratitude for believers in verses 15 to 16. See what Paul begins with. He says, for this reason or or therefore and anytime you ever read a therefore you have to ask yourself what's the therefore therefore and that that is a that is a built-in uh, 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 uh advisory suggestion look back at what has just been said paul has in in these few words paul is taking everything he has said in verses 3 to 14 and he is cramming it all into one little bubble uh one little uh hobglob and he says, because of all this, because of all that God has done for you, because of your great and immeasurable inheritance in Christ Jesus, which, as we have looked at, it includes your election, you know, just a few doctor, a few important doctrines, your election, your predestination, your adoption, your redemption and the security and the assurance of eternal life and heaven that is yours and that you know is yours because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. In light of all that, how could I not thank God on your behalf? He's saying, knowing what God has done for you, dear people, how could I give, not, give credit to where credit is due? How could I not thank God Almighty for showing compassion and mercy, and grace, and love to you. When he did this, when you were bent in your own ways, when you were stuck on doing your own thing. We're, we're, we're going to see in chapter 2, we were dead in the transgressions of our sins. We were enslaved. It was at that point when we were unable to help ourselves when we brought absolutely nothing to the table, it was then that God called you, says Paul. It was then when he drew you, when he saved you, when he redeemed you and sealed you and pledged himself to you. What kindness. What kindness. What kindness, which as we saw, is, is worked out by God. What kindness is energized Beginning in his, in the purpose of his mind, but then actively carried out by the force of his will. Energized, brought into reality. What kindness that is energized by his powerful, sovereign might. That, this is all the backdrop. This is, this is the launching pad. This is the first la- a layer of bricks in the foundation of Paul's attitude of gratitude. And so he says, and he continues to say in verse 16, after, for, for this reason, I, I do not cease giving thanks for 
you. That's a, I'm sorry, that's actually in verse 16. First half of uh, verse 16. And I, I bring that to your point now because that is the main subject and the main verb of this entire sentence. And when I say this entire sentence, I don't mean verses 15 and 16. Remember, remember how I said in the Greek, verse three to, verses 3 to 14 was one long monster of a sentence? It, it was the kind of sentence that if you use that in your uh, English grammar school, your teacher would put a big fat F and mark it up with red ink. Well, uh, that is the verses 3 to 14 was the longest verse in the New Testament, possibly, I've, I think probably the Bible. Verses 15 to 23 is another monster. It's a smaller monster. But it's another monster of a sentence. It's one long sentence. And so everything that Paul is going to say all the way to the end of chapter 1 are like little branches, little tendrils that are shooting off of this main idea. Paul does not stop giving thanks for believers. I find it remarkable that Paul is able to find the silver lining as he is imprisoned, as he is chained and watched by a Roman soldier. I, I, would, have had, I would have found ample cause to be sour. I would have become bitter. I would have become resentful, discontent, mad, frustrated. And yet, Paul finds joy. Paul finds joy and he gives thanks to God. Now, there's a couple reasons for this. One reason for his gratitude, for his, uh, as uh, John MacArthur says, an attitude of gratitude. It's because Paul recognized that with his imprisonment uh, uh, came unique opportunities to share the gospel with those that would normally be beyond his reach, out of his reach, uh, had he not been imprisoned. In Philippians 1.13, he says, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. The, the Praetorian Guard were the Roman soldiers specifically assigned to governors, to the rulers, and to uh, men like Caesar. He says, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole in Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And then in Philippians 4.22, he says, as he's closing the letter, he says, All the saints greet you, you dear Philippians, especially those of Caesar's household. Yet I remind you that Caesar was not exactly a pro, uh, uh, he wasn't exactly an advocate for the Christian movement. And yet we find some um, in his household saying, Paul, by the way, as you're writing, tell those dear Philippians that we greet them, that we, we are thinking about them, we care about them. So that's one reason why Paul could find joy and uh, find reason to be grateful as he is sitting imprisoned. Uh, another reason Paul could be grateful, and this is a reason we can specifically draw from our text today, is found, was found in the uh, privilege he had to receive visitors despite his imprisonment. Acts 20.30, which is probably the incarceration where he is writing the prison epistles. Uh, it was a two-year period where he was imprisoned. 
Acts 20, 30, 28, 30, I'm sorry, tells us that he was permitted to receive all who came to him. Roman prisoners, uh, uh, it wasn't a guarantee that they were, that they would be permitted to receive anybody who came to them. But in God's providence, his, 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 uh, overseers, the soldiers allotted to him, uh, 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 in charge of him, permitted him to receive all who came to him. And now these visitors who are coming to him, mo- most likely they are coming from the churches that Paul had, had previously planted and, and also had previously ministered to. We know he had gone on a series, at least three, uh, missionary journeys that took him all over, uh, the Roman Empire at the time. And as they hear that Paul was arrested, and they can, they, they can put two, two and two together, they figure if they're going to wait for Paul to come visit to them, it's going to be a minute. So instead of waiting for Paul to come to them, they go to where Paul is. And as they came to visit Paul, they were uh, able to update him on how the churches were doing back home. This allowed them to, uh, to update Paul and to keep him abreast of uh, the successes in the church, as well as um, ask him uh, questions about problems uh, they have as well. And we have a specific example of this in the book of Colossians, which is another prison epistle. And Paul, in, in Colossians, specifically names in chapter 1, he names Epaphras as being his informant. Epaphras came from Colossae and informed the apostle Paul of their love in the spirit. Now, I want you to look at verse 15. And as we read that, do we see a name? He says, Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and of your love for the saints. Notice, we have no idea who it is that is informing Paul about the state of affairs in the church of Ephesus, which I think is especially strange when we recall the fact that Paul ministered in Ephesus for not one, not two, but three years. You, you, you would expect a name. You would expect Paul to say something. Oh, by the way, I heard from I heard from Ted that uh, that, uh, that that brother Sam and sister Lucille uh, they just had their their child and they're doing great and and I heard about so and so that this is going on. You would expect some kind of name, but there's no name. He just simply says, I've heard some things about y'all. And I think what that tells us is there's a good chance, as I, I said in my, in my introductory message to this book, I don't think Paul is just writing to the Ephesian church itself. I think he is writing to the uh, church at Ephesus as well as the churches in the region around Ephesus. I think there were many visitors Many delegates coming to coming to Paul on the behalf of many churches, and there, uh, if Paul were to name anybody, uh, the list would just be too long. There would be too many names, and so he just keeps it vague. However, regardless, I mean, how many churches uh, sent delegates to Paul? That's a moot point. Here's the important point: regardless of of however many churches he has heard about, however many bodies of believers. Uh, he has heard about, they all have something in common. There is a common link, a common trait that is that he hears about them that is directly responsible for 
giving him grounds to find joy and have gratitude. Two things that have been reported to him that put a, a smile on his face and, and puts thankful, injects thankfulness and gratitude into his heart and in, into his prayers despite the discomfort of his chains, despite the inconvenience of, of imprisonment, despite the, the lack of, uh, of privacy and the lack of decency that he no doubt was uh, experiencing being chained to a Roman soldier at his side 24-7. Now, what are those two things? Verse 15 tells us, faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints. He says, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, having heard of those things, I do not cease giving thanks for you while, ma- while making mention of you in my prayers. So let's consider the first, the first quality that he has found to be present in all of the churches he's heard about, in all of the believers, in all the churches. First, we see that Paul is thankful for the believer's faith in the Lord Jesus. And this reminds us something absolutely critical about the Christian faith. The object of your faith, the foundation, the core of your faith, it is not in a creed. It is not in a sentiment. It is not in a motto. It is not in a movement. It certainly isn't in a political party. The object of your faith, the substance, the core, the thing that you cannot compromise or lose is not found in a creed or in men or in even in a church. The object of your Christian faith is none other than Jesus Christ himself. The faith that matters is a faith that is rooted in the crucified and risen and exalted Savior. Many churches, I fear, pay lip service to a Jesus, to Jesus, but if they if you were to survey them, if you were to listen to several of their sermons, if you were to sit in on their studies, if you were to listen uh, to their to the, to the songs that they sing you would find that for many of these churches, their worship doesn't center on Jesus. Their, their singing, nor their prayers, nor their preaching appear to be molded or shaped according to what Jesus prefers, according to what Jesus desires, according to what Jesus commands and instructs. Many churches, I fear, rather appeal to a Jesus who is there not to be served, not to be worshipped, but a Jesus who is there to serve us or to serve them. I fear many churches are structured around and built upon a Jesus who dare not make demands of those who would claim to follow him. I fear many professing Christians are appalled at the notion of Jesus presuming to have the right, the authority, the prerogative 
to make certain and specific demands of them. I want you to notice how Paul describes the object of their faith. Uh, he, could have, he could have chosen a number of ways to refer or to point to Jesus. He could have said, Jesus the Christ. Jesus, he could have said, Jesus the God-man. Jesus who is fully God, fully man. He could have said, Jesus the great prophet. Jesus the great teacher. Jesus the miracle worker. Instead, he says, you're having heard of your faith in the Lord, Jesus, the Lord. I think this is one of those words in in Christendom, and especially if you've grown up in the church, it just kind of becomes second nature. It just rolls off your tongue without you without you really uh, recognizing its significance. We can forget how important this word is and what it really means. It it means master. It means sovereign. It means king. Their faith was centered and anchored in the Lord Jesus. Everyone wants a savior Jesus. Everyone wants a miracle worker Jesus. Everybody wants a Jesus that they can bring their problems to, whom can snap his fingers and their woes are taken away. Crowds of of Galilee and the crowds of Judea show as much. And something else we learn from the crowds of Galilee and Judea is that while many people will walk on land and row across lake, And walk for miles and miles and miles to find a Jesus who will supply their needs. Very few want a Jesus that actually makes demands of them. That actually requires something of them. In the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly laid down the requirements along with an invitation to discipleship. He said, if anyone... If anyone, that kind of opens the playing field to everybody who wants to step on. If anyone wishes to come after me, this is what he must do. He must deny himself. He must take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9:23. And at the end of that same chapter where Jesus has sent out, you know, in uh, those of you who, who work at a, on a computer, you can uh, uh, go to Outlook and you can CC and, you know, you select all and you, you select all the email uh, addresses you have and you put that in the little thing and it just goes out to everybody all at once. Jesus has CC'd the invitation to discipleship to everybody within hearing range. And at the end of this chapter, at the end of Luke 9, with an open invitation, all we hear are excuses. When push came to shove, rather than drop everything and follow Jesus, people came up with excuses, they became silent, and they went their own merry way. We see a difference when Jesus called the disciples, who became the apostles, when specifically with James and John in Matthew 4.21, They're in the boat with their father, Zebedee. And another passage tells us that that they are there with servants as well. So this is a big big fishing enterprise. Jesus says, follow me. Matthew writes, immediately, as they're mending their nets, immediately they left the boat 
and their father and followed him. Implication being, now dad has to pick up all the extra slack. But they immediately responded to the call. They obeyed the call of their Lord. Genuine faith may not know everything there is to know about Jesus. Genuine faith in its infancy stages may not grasp all the depths of theology, but genuine faith knows and recognizes his voice and knows it is a voice to be followed and obeyed. Think about the Apostle Paul when he was taking his first breaths as a baby Christian. What were what was the Christian Paul's first words when Jesus called him? Who are you? Lord. Even as an infant Christian, Paul could recognize Jesus as Lord. The faith that perseveres recognizes the Lordship of Christ and responds. The faith that fizzles before the finish does not. I want you to see that the Lordship of Jesus is not a part of him. It's not a part, it's not an office of his that he can just set aside so that someone can accept him as savior first and then, and then down the road. Uh, after you've gotten your fill of licentious living, when you're tired of being the captain of your life, and when, and quite frankly, when it's more convenient, then you could make him Lord. Right now he's my savior, but he's not my Lord. When it's, when it's a little easier for me and my program, I'll, I'll recognize him as Lord later. No. When someone receives Jesus, as one man says, they receive him as he is. And you have to ask yourself the question, does the Bible say Jesus is Lord or not? Beginning The Bible, beginning to end, Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible unanimously says Jesus is Lord. But wait, where did it say it in the Old Testament? Psalm 110, what did David call his son? Psalm 10, the Lord said to, or Yahweh said to who? My Lord. Yahweh said to my Lord, Today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Old Testament says Jesus is Lord. New Testament says Jesus is Lord. The faith that recognizes that lordship is true faith. The faith that recognizes that lordship is abiding faith. It is saving faith. It is biblical faith. It is genuine faith. And Paul would say in Philippians 1.29 that this kind of faith is something given to us. It is a gift to us. We'll see this in, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 explicitly. This faith, this faith that saves, it is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. So when Paul hears that they have it, when Paul sees that they have a faith that recognizes Jesus as Lord. He knows God has been at work in them. He knows it. He doesn't have to get it. There's no guesswork. There's no educated guess. There's no estimate. There's no percentages. He knows God has been at work at him. 
at my house, Charlie uh, uh, started building a fence in the last year. And if you were to go there right now, uh, uh, and also a couple months, a couple weeks ago, before going to Nevada for the first time, I put up about a 14, uh, 12 foot section of fence on the side yard. So the dogs uh, can't. There's nowhere where the dogs can get out. It is a completely secure perimeter. And I guarantee you, if you go to my house right now, it would not take an, uh, a genius to determine which part of the fence did Charlie build, which part of the fence did Aaron build. You could look at one part of it and go, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I can guarantee one person did this part of the fence and one person did this part of the fence. Now, I'm, the secret things belong to the Lord. I'll let you decide who built what. But Paul, I want you to see, Paul hears about this biblical saving faith. He hears about this genuine Faith that only God uh, can produce in the heart. He hears they have it. He recognizes the handiwork of God. It's as if he can turn their faith upside down and he sees made in heaven on their, fa- on their faith. He knows this faith has come from God. He knows that God is at work. He knows that God has been energizing his purpose in their lives and that they possess all of this good, incredible stuff that he uh, just covered in verses 3 to 14. And so that moves Paul to worshipful gratitude, to great, thankful praise as he prays for the Ephesian believers. Now allow me to say this, too, that this makes me grateful as well. This makes this this truth of scripture makes me grateful as well. My soul finds great comfort in the knowledge that that Aaron is not the agent of change at Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church. Nor, beloved, I hope you know this. No single pastor or theologian is the agent of change in the church where he ministers to. It is not about us. It is not about me. It is not about my personal opinions or my personal whims. Beloved, it is about him and it is about his authority and his right to be heard. And it is about his power which affects the change he desires. I find great comfort knowing that I am not ultimately responsible to change anybody. I am not ultimately responsible for how anybody responds to me. I am merely the messenger. I am merely responsible to relay and to explain the message. And ultimately, if anyone responds, that is not because I'm so great. It is not because I'm so witty, because I I can recognize I'm a clay pot. But if anybody gets saved and sanctified under my ministry, it's not because of me. That itself is the handiwork of God. If anybody responds, it is because God has energized his purpose in their heart, in their mind, in their life. And by his doing, they are recognizing the authoritative lordship of Jesus. And they respond not for my sake, not for Charlie's sake. They respond for his sake. I'm relieved. I I am relieved to know that I can tell 
a genuine Christian, I can tell them things from the Scripture that I know their flesh does not want to hear. I can tell them things from this book that their pride, that their ego, that their sin does not want to hear. But for the sake of the Lord Jesus, they'll receive it. And for the sake of the Lord Jesus, they'll believe it and they'll apply it. That's the difference the Lordship of Christ makes. And likewise, if someone rejects me or my message, it's not about me. It is ultimately not me they're rejecting. And knowing that I've done my part, I won't be the one standing to give an account as to why I rejected the words of Jesus, but they will. That comforts me because that is a burden I was not meant to bear. I want you to see in matters of evangelism, in matters of counseling, in matters of confronting sin, in matters of seeking repentance, it is the power and the grace and the lordship of Jesus that does the heavy lifting. Not your, not your fancies, not your wit, not your oratory. Not your skill with words. Not, certainly not your charisma or how charming you look. So not only was Paul abundantly thankful for their, we could say, divinely crafted faith that was centered on the Lord Jesus. Not only was he abundantly thankful for that, he, he was also thankful for their uh, divinely crafted love. He was thankful He was grateful for their love for all the saints. See that in verse, continuing, uh, trekking forward in verse 15. Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. Now, there are two words that pop out as I read this. First one is love, agape. And we've seen this before. It is agape love. Uh, uh, you know, there, there are multiple words that can come uh, in, in Greek that can come across or be translated as love in the English. Agape is is in a category of its own. It is a selfless love. We, we call it unconditional love. And what that means is that agape love doesn't wait around for certain conditions or specifications or requirements to be met. Or to be filled before it acts, before it's put into play. Agape love is an attitude that chooses to give. It chooses to serve. It chooses to bless and to build up and to encourage and to protect protect and to provide for with no regard about what is coming back. What is being given in return? Are certain uh, conditions being met? Is this going to be worth it? Is this a worthy investment of my affection and of myself? Agape love doesn't even go there. Agape love is a, we could say it's a determinative love. It is a determined love. And it is certainly a divinely crafted love. Last time I checked, it was the first of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But you all know that. So along with love popping out in this in this verse, I also see the word all popping out. Your love for all 
the saints. Paul was thankful after hearing of their love for all the saints. What this means is, in addition to being unconditional, Christian love is indiscriminate. Christian love is indiscriminate. Christian love doesn't pick and choose a a select few, a lucky few to love among believers. In other words, agape, uh, Christian love doesn't say, well, I'm going to give it to you and I'm going to give it to you, but, but, well, yeah, I have to give it to you, but, but, but maybe not you, at least until, not until you shape up. Christian love doesn't do that. And why? Because Christian love is rooted in Christ Jesus himself. And the last time I checked, Christ loves all his people indiscriminately every last one of them from the greatest to the least from from the seminary professor to the janitor from the pastor to the deacon to the mother in the pew to the young man in prison to the old man in the hospital to the child who is able to have saving faith christ loves all his people indiscriminately he doesn't love anyone more or less than the other And maybe you've heard someone say, well, I love so-and-so. I love them, but I love them in the Lord. You ever hear that? I love, I love so-and-so. I love Ted in the Lord. And what that means is I have to say that I love Ted, but quite frankly, I can't stand Ted's guts. I can't stand that guy, but God bless him. That is, I hope you can see, that is lip service love. That is shallow love. That is hypocritical love. And we're all bound to know somebody that that gives us surface level, superficial reasons to avoid them. She talks too much. None of his jokes are funny. We are politically polar opposites. I, I don't find anything that that me and that person have in common. He, uh, she is so inconvenient, or or you know he's going to he always needs a ride home because his car is a piece of junk. Beloved Christian love loves all the saints, no exception, no exception. Anybody can love the easy to be around saints. It is easy to love people when they share your values. It is easy to love people when they share your political positions. It is easy to love people when you have the same hobbies, when you're in the same walk of life, when you grew up together, when you like doing things together. Those are the people that it's easy to love. It's easy to love people who are like you and sound like you. But it's the work of God in the heart that makes somebody love the inconvenient saints. The young and spiritually immature saints. The physically weak and feeble saints. The needy saints. The smelly saints. The off-putting saints. It is a divinely crafted love that makes you love all the saints with no exception. I find Paul's gratitude 
attitude to be exemplary. Hearing the proof that God was indeed working, that God was continuing to save sinners, that he was continuing to produce saving biblical genuine faith and agape love in the lives of his people. Hearing, hearing word of that brought comfort to the beleaguered apostle. It brought him encouragement. It brought him assurance. It reminded him, as I am sure that we all need to be reminded every now and again, that Christian theology, theology and the truths of our faiths, mark this, don't miss this, Christian theology and the truths of our faith aren't mere ivory tower speculations. I guarantee you when, when you try to share your faith, you will encounter people and maybe Maybe some of you have these um, suspicions buried down deep inside if you've, if you've never wrestled them out. But I guarantee you, you will find them in your community because I have. You will find people who think that what the Bible says is a bunch of gobbledygook. It is all speculation. It is all fanciful, whimsical theory. And it sounds really nice as long as you're in the ivory tower Christian theology and the truths of our faith are not mere ivory tower speculations. Theories that sound great on the drawing board but don't deliver in real life. That, that is not what the Christian faith does. I don't want to get too political, but just two examples of, of, of what I'm talking about. One would be socialism. Sounds great on the chalkboard. Sounds great on the drawing board. It sounds great in the classroom. It sounds great in the university. And if mankind wasn't so sinful and self-centered, it would probably work. But every time, every time socialism has been invented, I did the math, and when you compare, uh, when you compare uh, um, Stalin and um, I wrote down, oh, where'd they go? I wrote down their names. Lenin, Stalin, Castro, Mao, the two Kim Jongs. In the last hundred years, we have approximately a hundred million dead people because of social, socialism. Not only is life destroyed, but the quality of life is destroyed. Look at Venezuela. Socialism is a philosophy that sounds great on the chalkboard. It doesn't deliver in real life. I want you to see that the, what the Bible says, the truths of the Bible, the, the, the truths, the doctrine of your faith is not like ivory tower speculations. The power of God is at work. And when Paul saw the evidence of God's working, despite his poor circumstances, he was abundantly thankful. And just in closing, I, I, want, uh, I want you to see that his gratitude isn't limited to this passage. Paul, Paul's gratitude to God for what God was doing in the church is found, uh, it, it, it permeates his, his letters. He says in Romans 1 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. 
1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Colossians 1.3, for, um, he, he thanks, uh, he thanks God on their behalf for the faith, for their faith in Christ and love for all the saints. That's exactly what we have here in Ephesians. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Philemon, verse 4, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayer because I hear of your faith toward the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints. Throughout his letters, he hears of God's work in them, especially their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for one another, for all the saints. And that convinces him, that is the evidence for him that God's grace and God's powerful work is at play in the life of his beloved church. Not Paul's beloved church, but God's beloved church. And so Paul is moved to thankful praise, and quite frankly, we should be too. We should be too. So that's Paul's praise, Paul's gratitude, Paul's thankfulness. Next, next time, we'll cover his, his petition, his, his supplication on behalf of the Ephesian believers in verses 17 to 23. That's not going to be next week uh, because I'm going to be in Nevada next week. Charlie will be up here. So uh, hold on until then, but let's, let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this body of believers, for, for those who are here presently. And just as a side note, Lord, thank you that we, have the, uh, that we have the freedom to assemble. Thank you that we have the prerogative to gather again. Please continue to, to bring your church back together corporately, physically. But Lord, I thank you for those that are here. I thank you for those that are that are what uh, those among the church body who are who are out there who are uh, watching the live stream right now. I thank you for the grace that you are working, that you are uh, for your purpose, that you are energizing in their lives even right now. I pray. I I I, I thank you. Because I, I confidently expect that you are raising up strong leaders in these turbulent times. The church, by and large, has been coasting and drifting for so long. And I trust you are, that you are building up, that you are refining, that you are sharpening and honing strong leaders in the church. I, pr- I know that you are refining and honing and sharpening the faith of many in the church. I know that you are cleaning out and weeding some churches. Lord, we know you are at work. We are comforted knowing you are at work. You are the God who never sleeps nor, sl- nor slumbers. 
We entrust ourselves to you. We, we praise you for being the God who is attentive to his people. Thank you for being our great God and Savior. Amen.